Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Okay, here's the bottom line. The FBI, and you know, everybody's heard this by now, back in 2016, before the election even had happened, people in the FBI are looking around going, hmm, what's going on here with Donald Trump? It sure looks like this guy is dancing to the tune of Russia. Now, there's a couple of questions that I think are worth asking here and a couple of issues that are worth bringing out. And, you know, I would love to hear your opinion on this, too. A lot of this is just, frankly, opinion right now. But to what extent could it be that Donald Trump's embrace of Vladimir Putin and Russian perspectives and Russian historical narratives. You know, oh, the Russians went into Afghanistan, for example, because terrorists were coming out of Afghanistan. Is it that Trump is just following his economic interests? That he thinks that if he does a deal, if he behaves in a way that keeps Russia very, very happy, that the consequence of behaving that way will be that Russia then, in turn, will say to him, cool, you know, you want to have a Trump Tower in Moscow? We're on it. You know, I mean, in other words, is this entirely about that and about keeping the spigot open? The millions of dollars that have come from Russia via the NRA for Republican candidates, including a number of Republican senators, and back-channel help, right? You know, a little work from the uh, Internet Research Agency and all that kind of stuff. Is that Trump is just protecting his own political and economic interests? Or is it that he's actually, in other words, that would make him, I suppose, the unwitting dupe of Russians because he's doing it because he wants the money? Or is there something very different here? I mean, is it possible that the president of the United States actually has a higher loyalty to a foreign country than to the United States? And if that's the context, if that's the case, is it that his loyalty to Russia is part of a larger loyalty to other autocrats and oligarchs as opposed to a loyalty to democracy? And could that flow out of 
his worldview of being, you know, a billionaire oligarch. He loves Duterte. He loves Sisi in Egypt, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey. Of course, he's got a Trump hotel in Turkey. I mean, all these countries with autocratic leaders, North Korea, Kim Jong-un, President Xi of China, all these autocrats, Trump seems to embrace. So could it be that if your first commitment is to capitalism and the profit motive, rather than your first commitment being to small d democracy and a small r republic, could it be that that essentially requires you to support these oligarchs? This is like a really consequential question. And then if that's the case, I mean, if it's possible that what Donald Trump is really all about is destabilizing the United States, either because, hey, you know, Putin wants it and so he's going to do it because Putin's got something on him, or if he's trying to destabilize the United States, not because he's dancing to the tune of Russia or Putin or anybody else, but because he shares the opinion along with other autocratic leaders around the world. Like I said, you know, Duterte, Erdogan, Viktor Orban in Hungary, the Marine Le Pen group in France. I mean, you find this all over the world, that there are these autocrats, these oligarchs, who are fundamentally hostile to democracy because democracy makes it harder for them to basically own politicians. And owning politicians is the name of the game. I mean, we know now Len Blavatnik, this is this uh, U.S.-U.K. citizen who is a Ukrainian-born billionaire, buddies with the Russians. Him and his organizations passed along $3.5 million to Mitch McConnell. This is presumably money coming out of Russia. Calamary posting over Democratic Underground over the weekend on Friday. That old Mitch boy, he writes, is bought and paid for. Mitch McConnell, $3.5 million through this guy. Lindsey Graham, $800,000. Marco Rubio, $1.5 million. John Kasich, a quarter million. Scott Walker, $1.1 million. You know, is it that they're basically owned? I mean, is that what's going on? Which raises the really interesting question. Is Mitch McConnell owned, in this case, not necessarily by the Russians, although they donated apparently $3.5 million to his campaign, or the two... $25 million contributions from Shelley Adelson to McConnell's Senate Leadership Fund. Is it that, or is it that Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, her father is like this major Taiwanese shipping magnate who makes his money with China, with international trade. When he married Elaine Chow, he went from being a poor politician to being a multi, multi, multi multi-millionaire. And suddenly, her family started pouring money into his political campaigns and his career. The NRA last year, 54 million bucks that they spent. And then this whole thing with Elaine Chow is getting very, very interesting. The Bank of China extends a $37 million loan to the Chow family shipping company, Foremost. In May of 2016, Elaine's sister, Angela Chow, is elected to the board of directors of the Bank of China which now partners with Russia's VTB Bank. That's the bank that's under sanctions that Donald Trump was trying to get the sanctions lifted because that was the bank that was going to fund his Trump Tower Russia. So not only McConnell has links to China via the Chow connection, but also the Chow's family's interlinks with Russia. And thus, we see that Mitch McConnell has blocked every piece of legislation trying to protect the special counsel's investigation. He must be terrified of being caught. 
And that probably explains why back in 2016, when President Obama went to Mitch McConnell and said, you're the leader of the Senate, it looks like the Russians are messing with the election, we need to do something about this. And Mitch McConnell basically said no. Which raises an even larger question. Right now, the one guy who is keeping the Senate shut down, keeping the government shut down, is Mitch McConnell. If Mitch McConnell would allow a vote on opening the government in the Senate, it would pass, and it would pass with a veto-proof majority. And that vote has already been had in the House. And if it was vetoed, the veto would be overturned. So the one guy who could open the government tomorrow morning, this afternoon, is Mitch McConnell. And he's refusing to do it, which raises this really bizarre question. And I want you to think seriously about this question. Because just even asking this question is a frightening thing. Is it possible that the government shut down itself, which we know basically was completely unnecessary. Trump was ready to sign the legislation that just again passed the House. It passed the Senate unanimously on December 19th of last year. Trump was ready to sign that legislation that would have kept the government open and would have given him $1.2 billion for his damn wall. Trump was ready to go along with that. And then the next day he says no. Why? The common story is that he said no because Hannity and Laura Ingram and Rush Limbaugh told him to say no. But who told them to say no? Is this part of a campaign to destroy democracy in the United States? Is that what Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are doing? And if so, are they doing it at the behest of Vladimir Putin? Or are they doing it at the behest of the, of the fossil fuel billionaires? You know, the Kochs or the Adelsons. You know, he's a gambling billionaire or Robert Mercer. Why are these guys trying to kneecap us? Is it possible that the government shutdown itself is part of a broader conspiracy to bring America to her knees? to take this country down, to finally destroy our faith in our own government, the faith that Ronald Reagan started attacking when he was inaugurated in 1981 and in that first inaugural address said, the government is not the solution to your problem, the government is the problem. That was the beginning. When Reagan came into office and said that, the day before he said that, well over 70, 80% of Americans believed the government could solve problems. Now it's around 16%. This has been a relentless campaign for 50 years by Republicans and billionaire oligarchs to cause us to think that the government can never do anything right. Why? Because the government is the major impediment to billionaires polluting the air, ripping off their employees, cutting their own taxes by owning politicians. The government's the only thing that can stop that. So, of course, the billionaires want to take out the government. So, is this a Putin campaign? Is this an oligarch campaign? Is it both? Is it neither? Is the government shutdown that Donald Trump basically willed into being overnight and that Mitch McConnell has completely gone along with throughout the entire process? Are Obama, Pence, and McConnell being told to do this by Russians or somebody else? Are they being told to do it by the billionaire oligarchs who are libertarians and don't believe that the government should even be running anyway outside of having an army? Could that be it? I mean, is the end game here to prove to Americans, oh, you don't need us, we don't need no stinking government. Look at it. It ran for a whole month with no side effects without government. 
I mean, what is the end game here? What are these guys trying to prove? How much damage do they want to accomplish? How much damage do they want to inflict on this nation before they can dust their hands off and say, mission accomplished? Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism, too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes, and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, to use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com, Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Lewis in Chicago. Hey, Lewis, what's on your mind today? Yeah, good morning, Tom. I just have to totally disagree with you on your perception of Trump is doing anything in regards to this Russian stuff. We already know that the dossier was fake by steel. He admits it himself. Actually, uh, there then, has been nothing in the dossier so far, not one single thing that has been proved to be untrue. There are a couple of things, like did he hire hookers to pee true. on a bed, that have not yet been proven to be true. But there's nothing so far in the dossier that's been found to be untrue. And here we have... I mean, this is truly mind-boggling. Uh, this is after Trump's bankruptcies in 2006 going forward. This is from McClatchy, D.C. Between 2007 and 2010, buyers connected to Russia or former Soviet republics made 86 all-cash sales, totaling nearly $109 million at 10 Trump-branded properties in South Florida and New York City. This is money laundering. I mean, this is fairly obvious. These guys own him, Lewis. No business in Russia, so how can it be money laundering? Well, if he's he got no business in, in Russia, Russia, then how did he get $109 million from Russians? He absolutely did not, but we do know that. Uh, you know, Lewis, Lewis, look it up. Look it up. This is a matter of public record. These are Russian billionaires who spent $109 million in cash. These were not mortgages. Again, from McClatchy, D.C. Now, buyers connected to Russia or former Soviet republics made 86 all-cash sales, totaling nearly $109 million at 10 Trump-branded properties in South Florida and New York City. Many of them made purchases using shell companies designed to obscure their identities. <laughs> How convenient that is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary that they're trying to hide the fact that they're doing money laundering, and we've figured it out. Dave in San Francisco, listening on uh, AM 910. Hey, David, what's up? Oh, hi, Tom. What's Trump's motivation? That famous old acting question. I contend, of course, that he's greatly organized crime, but if you look at his allies... The Allies are basically three different groups. The older, the 1776 aristocrats, the Tories that have always hated America and hated the Republic. Uh, you've got the Klan and you've got the Nazis. So he's organized crime being led on by their insistence. So it's a complex mixture of 
traitors plus organized crime. Yeah. Profiteers. You know, I would say that the organized crime piece of it, these are, this is not the Sopranos. Tony Soprano was not a billionaire. When you're talking organized crime at the level of oligarchs like Donald Trump and many of these Russian and former Soviet state oligarchs, you're talking a whole completely different level of stuff here. Well, have you ever read about Sam Giancana? Yeah, actually, a fair amount. I just read one by his brother and nephew. It's called Double Cross, and it's by Sam Giancana, the nephew and his brother. When you're saying these guys were not billionaires, according to this book, Sam Giancana could have been a billionaire about the time of the JFK assassination. Hmm. So they were money laundering, and there's a lot of foreign policy that's discussed in that book. Right. Yeah, the big difference, though, is that Sam Giancana and Santos Traficani, Carlos Marcello, those guys who probably were mind-bogglingly rich, were more interested in staying below the radar than above it. And what we've got now are oligarchs who are just coming right out and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm buying political influence. The Koch brothers bragging about dropping three, four hundred million dollars in the last election. I mean, they're proud of the yeah, fact that they're... Yeah, they've gotten brazen. First of all, you have to ask the question, is Trump trying to damage the United States? I mean, when you look at what he's done at EPA, he's poisoning our air and water. You look at what he's done at Interior, he's selling off our public lands, basically raping a lot of them. You, sure. you look at what he's doing at the Department of Education with Betsy DeVos, he's destroying public education. You look at what he's doing at the Veterans Administration, he's got three rich guys down at Mar-a-Lago who are secretly running the VA from behind the screen. They have no official position, they've never been vetted by Congress, and the VA has started a privatization scheme. You look at what they're doing with the last budget for Medicare and Social Security, cutting back radically, and the IRS, cutting back radically on the number of people who can do customer service so that the service will suck, so that people will be angry and they'll want to privatize Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Pick some branch of government. Trump has done damage in every one of these areas. So then the question is, is he trying to damage the United States because he is in bed with, uh, afraid of, or sucking up to some foreign power? In this case, the boogeyman is portrayed as Putin in Russia. Although I think you could make a case that it's uh, Elaine Ch- China via Elaine Chow and his cabinet and Mitch McConnell. I mean, who knows, sure. right? Is he doing this on behalf of some foreign power or is he doing this in support of his own future personal wealth? Or are those two things not mutually exclusive? Is it both? Well, corporate state, If you, the more you study, you know, the rise of the brown shirts and the black shirts and the, under Hitler, they were two different organized crime gangs. In fact, Richard Condon, you know, the, the guy that wrote Manchurian Candidate, he has a lot of different books talking about the, the motivations of the Nazis were really more organized crime than they were political. And so when you start looking at at the corporate state and organized crime, they hire thugs, you know, whether it's Blackwater as a thug to to uh, capture a thing. You hire a guy like Manafort who ran coups for 20 years, for 40 years. The big boys are actually hiding behind. They don't want to get exposed. They'll they'll pin Manafort before they ever want to get exposed. Mm-hmm. So we've got a great opportunity, actually. It's uh, when you were talking about shutting down government and the actual destruction of our property. You know, since we the people own America and we the people are the employees of America, 
all of these unemployed or you know laid off government workers should be going back down to the office and making sure that some strange truck doesn't drive up and try to cart away all of the you know the assets yeah and god only knows that that might be happening david thank you for the call and for your observations i mean this is this is serious stuff and by the way this point needs to be made over and over and over again the one guy who could open the government is not donald trump it's mitch mcconnell and all he would have to do is say, I'm going to allow the members of the Senate to vote. That's all he'd have to do. And the reason he's not doing it is because enough Republican senators aren't demanding that he do it. And if you live in a state where you have one or more Republican senators representing you, I strongly encourage you to call 202-225-3121. 202-225-3121. That's the switchboard for the U.S. Senate. Call that number. Whatever state you're from, you know, just ask, say you're from Utah, you say, I want to speak to Mitt Romney, you know, I want to talk to my senator. Call, ask for your Republican senator, and then say, please tell Mitch McConnell to hold a vote on reopening the Senate. I mean, very, very straightforward stuff. Ginger in Seattle. Hey, Ginger, what's up? Hi. Um, You might want to tell that previous caller he may not be able to get through. I think the government phone line is still down because no, we, we checked this morning down. sure sure called that number that i gave out and it was answered i mean it, it may not oh, good, it, good. They, you know the, the individual senators may have chosen to close their offices or not i don't know we'll find out but we got as far as the switchboard this morning before we yeah you've really hit something with me this morning i've been thinking a lot trying to focus more on money with trump than the other stuff but mm. the other stuff is really in there too and i think along with the government shutdown in a way, Trump is also working on shutting us down, the base, by having them feel like poor Trump. He's our leader, and he can't even do anything for us. The government gets in his way. He can't even build the wall. This is awful. And the rest of us are just getting worn down by all the junk yeah. that goes on every single day. And then I think in the background, there's guys that we're not hearing about that much, the Steve Bannons and the John Bull. Yep. Hey, Ginger, you just vanished. I I don't know what happened, but Ginger just vanished. Ginger, good talking with you. Thank you. Cindy in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Cindy, what's up? Treason? uh, I just wanted to say, let's take this to its conclusion. Mm. Let's say Donald Trump is convicted of treason, and he's tried for treason. Would they take that to the ultimate conclusion, or would, would they give him an out? Oh, I'm sure that they would give him an out. In fact, my prediction is that he's going to cut a deal where both his sons, his daughter, and his son-in-law all get to skate, and he gets to skate in exchange for his stepping down. I mean, that's sort of like the deal that Spiro Agnew cut back in the day, back, you know, when he was Nixon's vice president and he was convicted of taking bribes in New Jersey. And I fully think that that's going to be how Trump gets out of this. I could be wrong. You know, we'll see, Cindy. We'll see. But let's not kid ourselves. What we're talking about here is either loyalty to domestic oligarchs or loyalty to a foreign nation, which is treason. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This is really startling stuff that the FBI was investigating a presidential candidate during the election. Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Morris, what's up? Hey, Professor, check this out. 
According to the New York Times, the U.S. president is an object of the Russians, right? If that is the case, everybody's thinking, well, impeachment. But there's another solution. I understand, because I spoke to the librarian, and I used to work at a library, that if this is true, that the president is an operative, then it's up to the attorney general to go and arrest him. You know anything about that? Hmm. Check it out, and I'll be listening to your program. I know you're a civic guy, but check that out, because I don't know. But that blew my mind. Well, no, it's, it's it technically it's true, Morris. The attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. And so, you know, if somebody was going to arrest the president, it wouldn't necessarily have to be the attorney general. I mean, it could be any authorized law enforcement officer in the federal government at the behest of the attorney general. But first, you have to have charges and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and also, there's this debate. The Justice Department has been saying all the way back to Reagan's time that actually all the way back to Nixon's time. <laughs> Nixon, the criminal, his Justice Department said, no, you can't arrest a president. Reagan, the criminal, his Justice Department said, no, you can't arrest a president. And Bush Jr., the, the criminal, his Justice Department said, no, you can't arrest a president. So, you know, kind of not surprised by those things. But we'll see where it goes. Morris, thanks for the call. Patrick in Mason, Ohio. Hey, Patrick, what's up? Tom, how's it going today? Look, you're on the on the button here. The only thing that can control rich people versus basically everybody else is government. It's the only thing that can contain them, because if not, they will crush us with the weight of their money. That's why they're trying to destroy the government from within. Yep. Agreed. So th Agreed. Which things that, you know, I just... I've been putting uh, one and one together, you know, for a number of years after, you know, listening to you and then watching the debacle with Gray Davis as uh, he got railroaded by that recall. And I didn't pay attention to politics until then because he says something about energy companies in Texas. And I wonder, what the heck is he talking about? Then right. Enron happened. Right. And then I, I was like, ah, that's what's going on. So people have to learn to look at the see the stuff that the great Oz doesn't want you to see. Yeah, well, with Enron, and, and a lot of people are, are uh, frankly not even old enough to remember it, with Enron, what you had was a situation where a private for-profit corporation did not like the way that the governor of California was behaving, and they decided to take him down. And they did. You know, they ran these rolling blackouts across California, across the West Coast. And while we got to listen later to the tapes of the Enron guys laughing about it, no, grandma's going to yep. have a fit. And, and then they used the popular dissatisfaction and anger around that and the price increases that were associated with it to kick out Gray Davis and replace him with Schwarzenegger. And <laughs> here we are. I mean, you know, California fortunately recovered from that. But that was about as dirty a dirty trick as you can play, Patrick. I tell people basically what I told you about the rich and their money crushing us. Yeah. You know, we see that, you know, in all of these, uh, in what's that, the, um, the lobby. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's your lap. Tom Harmon here with you. First, I wanted to get into uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying, you know, we really should have a 70% tax rate. And, of course, we did. From the 1930s, from 1933 up until the mid-1980s, we had a 74% tax rate. And it was the period of time of the greatest prosperity in the United States. And it was also the period of time when the middle class, uniquely, in fact, if you look at the history of the United States, uniquely, it was a period of time when the middle class, the working class, people making less than back in those days, you know, in those dollars, $50,000 a year, their salaries and wages were actually growing faster than the salaries and wages of the top 
or of CEOs in general. Today, 95% of economic gains go to the top 1% in terms of net worth. The richest 1% in the United States now own more additional income than the bottom 90%. The total net worth of all U.S. households is $94 trillion. If you divided that among all 124 million households, that's three quarters of a million dollars per household. Well, where's your share? It's being held by some insanely rich person. The wealthiest 1% own 40% of the nation's wealth. The bottom 80% only own 7%. So what do we do about this? I mean, historically, taxes have been the way that we have essentially prevented this from happening. Right now, the 400 wealthiest Americans in America have more wealth than half of Americans combined. On the line with us is Charles Sauer, libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute, author of the new book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. You can tweet Charles at Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. Charles, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Thanks for joining us. So tell me, how can you, and how do other libertarians for that matter, justify an economic system, progressively lowering taxes, that leads to monopoly and oligarchy and stifles the wages of middle-class people. It's, it's killing America. We're seeing a lifespan go down for the first time since the 1950s. We're seeing infant mortality go up. We're seeing you know, poverty increasing, all as a result of this insane tax policy that Ronald Reagan brought us. Well, the way that we rejoice is that we don't tell history the way that the left does, which is just telling their own false history. First off, if we look at the high tax rates from back in what the 1930s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, what we had was nobody actually paying those tax rates. We had a tax system where you could deduct your wife's business travel, not just deduct your own business travel or your own business meals, your own three martini lunch. That's what the left wants to not retell when they tell this history. So we rejoice that life is better. The fact that infant mortality is going down, it's going down in the U.S. because we're actually quantifying no, it at a lower... Infant mortality is going lower, up. In red infant states. mortality is going up, but it's because we're actually keeping track at a younger And, and Charles, you know, this is a complete red herring to say that back in the 70s, I could deduct my three martini lunch and any expenses, you know, business expenses that my wife incurred. I don't think that's unreasonable, A, but B, that has nothing to do with how somebody who's making hundreds of millions of dollars a year, tens of millions of dollars a year, what they're doing with that money or how they're basically taking it out of the mouths of working people. The simple fact of the matter is back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, CEOs made on average 30 times what their employees make. Right now, CEOs make on average 560 times what their employees make. And there's only one reason for that. And that is the change in the tax laws starting in the 1980s. But the quality of life is increasing. Those same people for working maybe people. couldn't afford a car then, and they might be able to afford a car now. And cars would be more affordable without the high regulations in place. Maybe they weren't and able more to get deadly. a TV. But guess what? TVs are now owned by everybody. If we look at poverty rates today, people have multiple telephones, multiple TVs, multiple cars. 
This is in a different world. Comparing those numbers is a retelling of history that doesn't make any sense. Charles, a, a $200 AOC's TV plan. is such a small piece of a family's household, you know, four or five year budget because a TV lasts four or five years typically, that to say that somebody's not poor because they own a TV at the cost of what, 16 18 $20 a year? I mean, that's an absolute slap in their face. I mean, I'm I, astonished that I you would even use, use that kind of bizarre argument. Those words. You're putting those words in my mouth. The words I used was increased quality of life. I'm saying that poor I'm not talking about quality of life. I'm talking about wealth. No, no, you were the one that just put words in my mouth. The fact You're is, trying is, to change the conversation the away from who owns sector. everything to, well, gee, poor people have a decent quality of life because they have a phone and a TV. That's a nonsense argument. If you're broke, if you're in debt, you've got a $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. You've got you know families who are making less money now than they were back in the 1960s. I mean, even the minimum wage is below what it was in the 1960s. It's about half of what it was in the 1960s if you inflation adjusted. I don't see what any of that has to do with the ability of a poor family to own a television. I'm saying it increases their quality of life. You get more information Make them and poor. more understanding of what's going on. You understand how to pull yourself up out of poverty. And the fact is, is if you look at the research, the left has pushed enough federal laws that you can be poor, but you can't live in what's under the federal poverty level under today's circumstances if you're willing to get the programs that are out okay, there. Okay, so Charles, I get it, that you're fine with the situation as it is right now. And in fact, maybe you would like working people to have even less money and very, very wealthy people to have even more. But you never answered my original question, which is what's wrong with going back to the tax rate that we had from the 1930s to the 1980s, which was literally the singular period of the greatest prosperity of this country for pretty much everybody except the top 1%, and certainly for working people in the United States. What's wrong with going back to that kind of tax policy? Well, I actually slipped it in and didn't think that you were going to take the bait, but you took it. The problem with it is that politically to get that, you have to exempt so many things. And what we now have is a very progressive tax system, but it's a flatter tax. We have less deductions that people can take. Wait a minute. Are you, you saying that in order to get something travel, you past can't deduct the, business meals? You're, you're saying that we can't have a high tax rate, which suppresses the top 1% basically from stealing all the wealth in the country. We can't have that because the top 1% owns so many Republicans they won't allow it to happen. In other words, it's not politically feasible. That's a pathetic argument for saying why it shouldn't happen. No, I'm saying that all economists understand that that tax system is a bad thing. If you tax the wealthy at that rate, they're either not going to work or they're going to hide their money. That's you great. To hell with to them. The if they revenue, hide their money, if they hide their money, the IRS will track them down and take it. And if they don't want to work, I don't want them here. That is a fabrication of history. When the tax rate was, what, 91, 94%, people weren't paying that. The highest people were paying were like 66%, 45%. And that was still a ridiculous number, but that was what they were paying on their income on the marginal dollar. That wasn't even their overall tax rate. So if you start off with a made-up conversation, you can corner me into a made-up conclusion. Okay, Charles, I get it. Here's the, here's the, the guy, this is start uh, Sean, the 360 here. Here's the guy who raised the top tax rate from 25% to 91%. On the one hand, there has been a vast majority of citizens who believe that the benefits of democracy should be extended and who are willing to pay their fair share to extend them. And on the other hand, there has been a small but powerful group 
which has fought the extension of these benefits because it did not want to pay a fair share of their costs. He's saying basically the same stuff that Alexandria Ocasio said. In fact, here's another one. Taxes, after all, are the dues that we pay for the privilege of membership in an organized society. And as society becomes more civilized, government, national and state and local, is called on to assume more obligations to its citizens. The privileges of membership in a civilized society have vastly increased in modern times. But I am afraid we have many who still do not recognize their advantages and want to avoid paying their dues. Why is it that guys on your side, Charles, never even engage in this conversation? Well, first off, let's just think back. I like hearing actual oratory, hearing somebody actually sell something. But that doesn't mean that he's not selling a bill of goods. That doesn't mean that he's not framing the conversation more prosperity in a ridiculous than this country's way. ever had. No, they, that was created on the books. The fact is, is that what he's saying there is I'm spending money on the credit card so fast that you all need to spend more money. And I am going to define what Charles, is when Reagan came into office, the national debt wasn't even one trillion dollars. When Reagan came into office, the national debt was only eight hundred billion dollars. Reagan tripled it, you know, starting the two Santa Claus strategy. You know, I get that. But. You know, you can't say that he was spending money on the national credit card. That, that's yeah, not what was happening. Our, he, our economy. Him and Eisenhower just, just stimulated the government. He said the economy. Government, is, government is increasing and becoming more expensive. The yes. fair share is rising. He yes. said that in the speech. Yeah. You can't retell it minute to minute. The fact is, is what is going on here is that we had decimated the rest of the world. Of course, we were growing. We had all of this innovation that was happening. Our economy was booming. Right now, we're in an actual fight, a, a hand fight with the rest of the world on who's going to grow the economy. Because we, we have, blew up Roosevelt's policies. We embraced neoliberalism. Not, no, Rose, those policies were slowing down innovation. We now have more innovation in the private sector, and we're winning. Okay, Charles Sauer, a libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute, his new book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do, uh, marketinstitute.org. Tweet him at, at Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. Charles, thanks for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. Here's a New Year's resolution that's easy to keep. Make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. I used to constantly feel uncomfortable throughout the workday until I realized I was spending thousands of hours sitting in the wrong chair. So follow my example and ditch that no-name superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. I've been raving about how much I love my X chair for, geez, years. Well, if you're on the fence about buying one, here's great news. Now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. When you sit in it, you'll understand why I love my X chair so much. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to XChairTom, that's T-H-O xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us, 
Harvey Kay, professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay, the author of numerous books. His latest, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. His Twitter handle is Harvey J. K. K. A. Y. E. Harvey, welcome back to the program. Tom, good to hear your voice. It's nice to have you on. So I don't think most Americans even know that a sitting president of the United States 75 years ago today called for free college education for everybody, free health care for everybody, and an absolute guarantee that your job will pay you enough that you can have a reasonable standard of living, along with two other things. That shows you how effective the suppression of memory has been by conservatives and how much the, the, the left or liberals at best have turned their backs on a tremendous legacy, the legacy we ought to be reviving today. Yeah. Amen. So tell us about it. An FDR ran for president originally in 1932. He first called for an economic declaration of rights. And I don't know how many people actually took him seriously when he said that, but I think he was sincere even at that time. And then in 1941, when the United States had yet to enter World War II, he delivered a State of the Union message, which called for at least the pursuit of a world characterized by four essential freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear. And it did become the, the sort of guiding sort of uh, philosophy of the war effort. But I still don't think people were quite ready to take it as seriously as he probably intended it. And then in 1944, in the State of the Union message, with, with the intention of running again for president that year, he put even more emphasis on those four freedoms by elaborating and stating in, his, in that message uh, these, these, this Bill of Rights a second Bill of Rights or an economic Bill of Rights. And really, it became not simply a sort of, uh, you know, handy device in the State of the Union message, but the CIO, the, Cong you know, the, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, they actually launched a major, a major campaign that year in 1944, making that, I, that vision of a second Bill of Rights the heart of the campaign. They went out, they were going to organize people to vote, they issued pamphlets. I mean, it was a tremendous project on their part. And, of course, FDR won once again, his fourth time uh, for president. Now, I can tell you that that kind of speech was not welcomed by Republicans and, and was not necessarily welcomed by Southern Democrats. And FDR was under no illusion that he would be able to see the enactment of the, that second Bill of Rights he was calling for. However, he did envision the possibility that after the war, those kinds of freedoms, those kinds of rights, would become part of American public discourse and possibly enacted in various forms. And I'll, and I'll just add that though it did not happen in that way, of course, the GI Bill of Rights, which was enacted in 44 and 45, became very much the basis upon which the United States took off after World War II and literally created the middle class. Right. It was with, with all these things. So go through the five, the, 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 the five elements of the, the, the second Bill of Rights. Well, I mean, it's an interesting list. He actually calls, I'll just read a few of the lines, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. And notice, and recreation. Right. That, you can take a vacation every year. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That was essential for not only economic security, but for, for well-being. Um, he actually mentions the right of every farmer to raise and sell his produce, at a return, which will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every family to a decent home. How's that for a concept? Right, right. guaranteed housing, that's right. Right. The right to adequate medical care, 
and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, which I think goes back also to that idea of recreation. Right. Uh, similarly, he talks about the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. And by no means the least of them, the right to a good education. And let's not forget, let's not forget that FDR himself, in, this, in that GI Bill of Rights, envisioned the education and the training of an entire generation of young Americans who had enlisted and fought or been drafted and fought in some fashion in World War II. And that, that involved up to 16 million young Americans. And he accomplished uh, that, by the way. I mean, you know, and, and, uh, and, and you bet 12 million of the veterans, which included uh, men and women, actually took advantage of those things. And as I said, it really did lead to the development of not only a phenomenal higher education system in the United States, because colleges necessarily expanded, but also a generation literally improved themselves, radically transformed themselves and the nation at the very same time. And I would also add that that vision of the Second Bill of Rights also comes up as part of the Great Society initiatives of the 1960s. Of LBJ. Yeah. Amen. Right. So hopefully, as more and more uh, Democratic candidates are stepping forward to talk about, yes, I would like to be president, we already have uh, right. Yeah, we've, we've got several so far. Um, uh, Elizabeth Warren was first to announce it looks like uh, Kamala Harris is going to be next. Uh, Sherrod Brown is making some noises. These are all good, solid progressives who I would, I th I would think would be 100% behind uh, the second Bill of Rights. And, and uh, in my opinion, it's time for the Democratic Party to return to its FDR roots and just start overtly saying these kinds of things. Right. I, I would remind people that in November of 2015, Bernie actually gave a speech at Georgetown University, which was uh, nationally streamed, in which he reminded Americans of FDR's second Bill of Rights or Economic Bill of Rights. I can readily imagine uh, AOC, you know, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, resurrecting these things. I mean, for what it's worth, I, you know, I'm tweeting this as much as I can to get the word out. I noticed there's an article in The Nation today. I mean, there is discussion. Mm -hmm. a, smart, a smart set of Democrats we need a vision, and this would be the basis for that kind of vision. Yeah, amen. Harvey Kay, professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, the author of The Fight for the Four Freedoms, among other numerous and brilliant books. Um, my favorite of all the things you've written is your book on Thomas Paine. Um, what was Thank the title you. of that again? Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, still alive and well, so they can find it in various places. There you go. Harvey Kay, Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay, the author of numerous books. His latest, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. His Twitter handle is Harvey J. K. K. A. Y. E. Harvey, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Anytime. Thank you. Our book today is The Women's Suffrage Movement, edited by Sally Roche-Wagner. It is a, a collection of essays by a whole variety of people, from Gloria Steinem to, you know, onward. This is from the foreword. With the women's suffrage movement, Sally Roche-Wagner has given us a unique gift, the real words and actions, writings and debates of white and black women who fought for over a century to gain an identity as free human beings and citizens. For most of those years, black women were legally owned as chattel, forced to work and to suffer the unique punishment of giving birth to children who were also enslaved. White women were not as restricted and endangered as African women or men, but as the daughters and wives of white men, they were also legal chattel with no right to leave their homes, disobey orders, 
profit from their own work, speak in public, have custody of their own children, own property without a guardian, or affect the patriarchal laws that governed their lives. Even many white men who fought against slavery supported the subordinate position of their wives and daughters. When Susan B. Anthony, an abolitionist and a suffragist, sheltered not only runaway slaves, but white wives escaping violent husbands, male abolitionist allies warned her that she was going too far. As Frederick Douglass, a freed slave abolitionist and suffragist himself, wrote in his autobiography, when the true history of the anti-slavery cause shall be written, women will occupy a large space in its pages, for the cause of the slave has been peculiarly women's cause. And this despite the fact that many white women, especially not only in the South, aided and abetted black slavery and accepted their own subordinate position as natural. A century later, Gunnar Myrdal would explain in his landmark study of slavery that enslaved African women and men brought to these shores had been given the legal status of wives as the nearest and most natural analogy to the status of slaves. As he added, the quote, the parallel between women and Negroes is the deepest truth of American life, for together they form the unpaid or underpaid labor on which America runs, end quote. Wagner takes us into the rooms, writings, and discussions where white and black women and black men, all fighting for legal personhood and full citizenship, were both a miracle of shared purpose, despite all the lethal forces keeping them apart, and a tragedy of division that echoes in the need for intersectionality and inclusion in this day. In 30 years or so, this will no longer be a majority white country. It will better reflect the diversity that has always been its strength and its promise. Indeed, the first generation that is majority babies of color has already been born, and public opinion polls already show that the majority Americans no longer support divisions by race or by gender. Yet there is also a lethal backlash from about a third of the country, including over half of white married women, often those without a college education, who want to preserve their unearned place in the social and economic hierarchy. That's why these victories and defeats of the past become the best possible lessons and warnings for our present and future. By taking us into the rooms where history happened, Wagner allows us to see the parallels and differences, empathy and estrangements, connections and isolations that can hinder or help our goals now. Almost none of the people we will meet in these pages will live to celebrate the changes they are working for. This should tell us that social justice movements are not a temporary part of our lives. They are our lives. Most of the activists here were not sure that slavery would be abolished or that universal adult suffrage would ever succeed. This should give us humility about what we can predict and also arm us with faith and patience. Few guessed that the legal right to vote would come a half century later for black men, but would be mostly on paper. In the South, where most black Americans live, it would take another century plus an entire civil rights movement to overcome procedural and sometimes lethal barriers to voting. This should make us skeptical about changes that come from the top and that divide us more than empower us. And there are other lessons, and it continues. The Women's Suffrage Movement, its collection of essays edited by Sally Roche Wagner. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen 
in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 own gold ask for their free gold protection guide, and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. So the question, the bigger question of the day is Donald Trump shutting the government down part of a Russian plan, a Koch brothers plan, an Adelson plan, a Mercer plan? Is it the part of some foreign autocrat or domestic billionaire autocrat, wannabe autocrat, to damage the United States government? And if so, how much damage do they want to inflict on us before they say, okay, you know, done? And apropos of that, the Los Angeles teachers went out on strike this morning. And, you know, this follows, I think this is the uh, eighth or tenth state now that has, ha has seen substantial teacher strikes. Uh, we had them just across the river here in Washington state just before the elections in a number of other states before the elections. And in many cases, I, I believe in most all cases, the teachers won. But the main thing that the teachers are striking against in Los Angeles, and we need to point this out because this is part of the, all the same fabric. And that is the takeover of America by oligarchs who put money above patriotism. They're more concerned with how much cash they can make than they are with whether or not we have functioning public schools. The whole charter school movement, as it were, supported by billionaires like Bill Gates and Betsy DeVos, is all about turning public education, which is a multi-hundred billion dollar enterprise every year, turning that from a public function, which was efficient, relatively low cost, and you know, for most of my lifetime provided one hell of a good public school system, of destroying that and replacing it with a for-profit school system where, you know, in, in high net worth areas, you've got really high performing schools and, and in poor areas, eh, not so much. Somewhere in the neighborhood of half of all the schooling in Los Angeles now is being done by charter schools that by and large are not unionized and that by and large suck resources out of local public schools, which is why in some cases you have 40, 50 students in a classroom in Los Angeles, which is obscene. I mean, it's, it's, it's not only terrible and wrong, it's obscene. It's, it's bad for the kids, it's bad for the teachers, it's bad for the system. It's exactly, therefore, what the oligarchs want, the, the, the people who believe that the, only, the government has no function other than running an army. And even that they shouldn't do. We, we should have Blackwater fight our wars for us instead. We should privatize everything. Why? So some oligarch can make a fortune on it. And why do we want to diminish the role of government? Because government can restrain oligarchs. Government is the only force that can hold back a giant corporation from ripping you off. Government is the only force that can prevent a billionaire from buying the politicians who are going to then screw you. Government is the only force that has that ability. The protective and police functions of government. So of course the oligarchs hate government. Of course the, the, the international oligarchs hate government. So how much damage will Donald Trump and his, and his America-hating buddies 
have to inflict on the United States? How much damage will Mitch McConnell have to inflict on the United States before his wife's Chinese business partners say, okay, cool, enough? Or before Putin says, okay, you've done enough. I guess that was worth that $3 million in, in contributions. How much damage has to be done? Or is this all a completely innocent thing? Is Donald Trump just a, you know, a, a totally naive do-gooder who somehow doesn't want his discussions with Putin to be recorded? Those folks who support our program, who help essentially sponsor us on YouTube and on Patreon, uh, have access to content that is generally not available on YouTube or, you know, anyplace else. The rant this week that we recorded just a few minutes ago, actually, is about how the cell phone companies have been selling your data. And now they swear, double cross your heart and hope to die. Don't worry. We're not going to sell your data anymore. Right. Meanwhile, Gene Shaheen is saying, you know, the drug companies are ripping us off. And at the same time, they're spending billions of dollars on advertising to jack up demand for products that in many cases we don't need and are actually harming us. So she's saying do away with the tax break that they get. Advertising is tax deductible. Do away with that tax deduction. I mean, cool stuff. There's a lot of ways to regulate these companies. And it's so good to see that Congress is actually starting to do something about it. Thank you for supporting Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. So let's check in with Bob Ney and find out what's going on in the world today. Talk Media News report is brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com. And Loving What You Do, a book by Ellen Ratner. Bob is the author of Sideswiped and writes and reports for TalkMediaNews.com. Hey, Bob, welcome back. Oh, thank you, Tom. So, uh, you know, as, as a former congressman from Ohio, I put the question to you, Bob. Is Donald Trump acting on behalf of the interests of Russia? Or is he acting on behalf of the interests of the billionaire oligarchs in the United States who want to see the United States government weakened and crippled and diminished so that they can be more profitable and have lower taxes? Or both? Well, I'm old enough to remember the Frank Sinatra, Angela Lansbury, Manchurian candidate. The movie. movie. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, you know, when you look at, really, what, and, and I do want to mention something about the FBI, because I'm skeptical of the FBI, but just because of Comey and his history with Hillary and what he did, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But having said that, I mean, everything you look at, the meetings, uh, Roger Stone, Manafort, Flynn, everybody connected to Moscow, it's almost like the president throws it out there that he has some connection. If you look at the, the actual... Um, you know, the story and report that has come out, uh, 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 you know, a couple of them actually, Tom, where you look at, um, you know, the money trail over there, the Deutsche Bank, uh, Eric Trump boasted in 2014 that they didn't need the funding over here, you know. Uh, of course, uh, and also that Russians, quote, make a pretty disproportionate cross-section of a lot of our assets. That was Donald Trump Jr. in 2008. Right. Let, me, let me repeat that. Russians make up a pretty disproportionate cross-section of our assets. So having said all of that, I'm Machiavellian, I guess, in the sense of suspicious about the FBI, that now they say, well, they looked at it as an intel source, sort of like the Manchurian candidate. The only reason I say that Maybe, you know, they throw that out there, and then it's 
kind of disproved, and then the president's able to say, you see uh, what they were trying to say about me. I think there's a lot of potential here for extreme problems of the president uh, on the fact of the business and what New York State's going to look into and in the, in the Trump children and Kushner and the father of Kushner, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's a money trail all over the world, but I think there's one with Russia. So you, you know, think and, that, and so, so essentially, Bob, is what you're saying that, yeah, Trump may have been sucking up to Russia, but he was doing it because he wants to make himself richer. Trump may have yeah, I, been have been damaging our institutions, you know, putting lobbyists in charge of the EPA and, and, and the environment and the Interior Department and everything else. But he was doing that because he wants to get richer. I, I think, yes, more of the, I think the problem that, and Ellen and I had a long conversation today about this, I think part of the problem we have to be, as analysts on this, with the media suspicious of internal leaks from the FBI, especially at this point in time, of they were looking at this as an intel source. Right. I'm not so sure it was as an intel source where he was born and raised to be a surrogate for the Russians right. as much as it's a money trail. So, in other words, if, if Trump ruins our country in an effort to make himself rich by building a hotel in Moscow or by having lower taxes or, or fewer regulations on his own buildings here and his own income, that still works to the benefit of any government that yes. wants to see democracy oh, diminished. Absolutely. It's just not a planned, plotted intel right. situation where somebody's placed. So they're using but, Trump's you know, greed as basically the principal tool of destruction of the United States. Yes, and people like to play on that. We know the industrial military complex, the greed, war machines, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's out there. It's been out there. Wow. It's like the cancer stage of capitalism. What else is going yeah. on, Bob? I, I can't miss a day without John Bolton. I'm sorry, but, you know, the Iran is someone in Iran, not the Iran, is someone in Iran lobbed three mortar shells into a vacant lot in Iraq. And John Bolton actually asked for a, a basically a war plan. <laughs> from the Joint Chiefs, Pentagon. from the Pentagon. Yeah, that's chilling. Yeah. It is chilling because he wants a war. And not that the Iranian government's a picnic. I understand that, but they're also having a world conference where even the Saudis are coming to discuss what the number one danger in the world, Iran. Hmm. And you know, this is organized. This is what you get when you have a national security advisor like John Bolton. And you know, this story didn't get a lot of attention, but I think it's amazing that somebody lobs three mortar shells into a vacant lot, and we have somebody in the White House that's trying to prepare for war over it. Yeah, this is uh, actually a, a much less significant event than the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. And to think that yes. Bolton might have tried to use this, or did try to use this, to possibly start World War III, that's mind-boggling. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Bob Nay, Congressman, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Good talking with you. You can find Bob's book. It's called Sideswipe, wherever you find books. I, I think we've all got some real, some real serious thinking to do here and, and learning. You know, is Trump trying to destroy America on behalf of the oligarchs or on behalf of somebody else? Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.